All right, the last three verses of Second Peter 2. That's 20, 21, and 22. I will tell you this, they are not pretty verses, especially verse 22. All right? But they are necessary verses to understand Peter's explanation. He too is working with the false teacher, as I've already said that so many times. But we want to keep it in its context. And I especially stress that that is the context. Verse number 21 has been used in a lot of other ways than in the context. <laughs> All right? So I want to be very careful in my ex explanation. I was going to exclamation. Explanation of this passage so that we're not confused. And I hope we're not. For, verse 20 says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last day has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Happy verse, huh? That's usually not the one we memorize, verse 22. When there's Bible verses to memorize, that's not on the top of the list, is it? Um, so we're going to walk through this, and as you can already see, people have used this for a lot of different reasons. And one of them is to try to understand, how could a Christian not live like a Christian anymore? Is it possible for them to walk away from their faith and become just like what this picture just portrayed? We're going to talk just a little bit about that, uh, but we're going to keep it in its context. In Matthew 13, Jesus taught a simple little parable about a man who had sent out his workers to plant the wheat seed for the year, and uh, they did that, and it wasn't very long after that they discovered that during the night, the enemy had snuck in and planted the tares. And then their big question was this, do we go out and pull up the tares? And he said, no. Why? It would tear up the wheat. It sounds like a simple thing. But it's hard to watch your field grow up with tares and wheat in it. Wouldn't that be tough when you could do nothing about it? Until wait until the very end when there's harvest season and then the right things are divided. You don't want to eat the tares. All right? They look like the wheat as they're coming up. From all I've researched, I'm not a wheat farmer, but I've seen plenty of wheat fields now. All right? So that much I know is that the tares look like that, but the fruit of the tare is not at all like the fruit of the wheat. The wheat is edible, the tare is not. The tare is bitter, they said. It's not something pleasant at all. You don't want that there, but the problem is, it's growing in next to your wheat. A simple little picture that was presented there, but the tares can cause a great amount of damage to a harvest. And that's where it comes down to. It's kind of hard to walk through there, especially in our day and age with big combines, to pick out all the weed <laughs> as you go. That's a tough job to, to do for anybody. 
But let's consider this this handful of verses 20 through 22. Look at the damage done by a false teacher. And the damage, it sounds very interesting to say this, but a lot of the damage they do to themselves. All right? And we're going to walk through this as we, we talk about it. But I, I can't help but getting that picture of the wheat and the tares in my mind because the false teachers are in among the church. That's where they go. That's where they teach. And they look like Christians. And they act like Christians. And they say Christian words and all those things. And yet they are not believers. They're very much like the tear going in among the wheat. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. But the Lord knows, doesn't he? He knows who are his and who are not his. And sometimes we might be deceived, but he never will be. Here's a beautiful thing, folks. There will not be one false teacher in heaven. Isn't that great to know? They're not going there because they don't know Christ as their Savior. So we're going to get to spend eternity with all wheat. No tares. Let's talk about this picture. Because this damage being done starts also in the back verse, uh, uh, back part of verse number 19, where it says, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. In the context of the false teacher, let's remember, they are doing their best to enslave people, but they are enslaving themselves too. They are not escaping the very trap that they're setting for other people. They are overcome just as much. And the word actually is what we call the perfect tense. They are completely overcome. They are completely overcome. And he's enslaved. Now, I don't want you to sit here tonight and feel sorry for a false teacher. Okay? But we're going to talk about how bad off he really is. And he doesn't even know it. Peter, Peter's been walking through this topic and these things we've already seen. But let's walk through them. There's about uh, eight things here on my list. From Peter's description, and we're going to just kind of overview these things that we know about the false teacher already. Number one, they have a spiritual appearance. All right? They have a spiritual appearance. It said in chapter 2, I'll give you a couple of verses to back up on. Chapter 2, verse 1, they arose among you. This is a church setting. And they are teachers. That means they've been recognized by leadership. They're leading people astray. Verse 2 goes on, and, and others as well. They must have looked right for them to have gotten such a position. They had a, a spiritual appearance. But they are deceptive. Number two, they are deceptive. In verse number one, they secretly introduce destructive heresies. In chapter two, verse 17, it says there's springs without water and all the other descriptions that go along with that. But springs without water, that's a terrible deception. In chapter 2, verse 19, it says that they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. They're saying, this is what i got to sell. Freedom! And they're enslaved themselves. 
There's a deception in that. And they've gotten many people following that after them. So they have a spiritual appearance, and yet they're deceptive. I like to say it this way, the third item, they are disgusting. All right? When you walk through this passage in chapter 2, verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality is part of their, their behavior. In chapter 2, verse 10... They indulge the flesh and its corrupt in its corrupt desires. In chapter two, verse thirteen and fourteen, they are stains, they are blemishes, and they're reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. In verse number eighteen, they speak out arrogant words. They entice by fleshly desires and by sensuality. Now that's a small picture. And that's actually a, a lightly worded picture of what they're up to. They've been compared in this passage to places like Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's pretty, it's pretty disgusting when you get down to it. And I'd rather not just go into all the depth of all that. But we know it's not good. And now toward the end of verse number 22, they're compared to dogs and pigs. Right? Nothing in there is pretty. Number four, they are also destructive. I've already showed you in verse number two that they are, or verse number one, that they're introducing destructive heresies. In verse number two, the way of the truth is maligned. In verse number 12, they, there's destruction mentioned here. Reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. They are participants in destruction, and that will come upon them too. But there's never a time when a false teacher uh, constructs in the church, builds it. Strengthens it, edifies it. A false teacher always destructs. He tears it apart. He tears it apart. He tears it apart. That's his only way that he works. He tears it apart. Unfortunately, I taught some of my children this kind of habit uh, when they were little, um, very, very little. We had a lot of those wooden blocks that we like to play with and the colored ones, and I would build a tower. We called this game Tornado. Okay, I'd build a tower on one side of the room, and they were just learning to crawl and, and laughing, and that's always a funny time. I just love it when they're all giggly, and they, they laugh, and they're learning to crawl and all that. And so I'd set up my tower, and I'd say, don't you touch my tower, don't you touch my tower. And you know exactly what they want to do. They come at full speed to that tower, just whack it as hard as they can, and throw the blocks all over, and they laugh and laugh and laugh, and then I take all the blocks and go to the other side of the room and build it again, only for them to come and destroy it. I encourage my children to destroy things. I'm still trying to figure out how to stop it. <laughs> they're only in their 20s and 30s, but there it is. Um, but this is all they do, is destroy, 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 destroy. They're destructive. Number five, they're full of themselves. They are full of themselves. The word arrogant keeps popping up here, but in verse number 10, those who indulge the flesh and corrupt 
desires and despise authority. They're daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. That's that's a very interesting thing to even try to understand. But folks, I wouldn't mess with an angel. Angels are bigger than you and stronger than you and faster than you and smarter than you. Uh, One angel we hear of in the book of Isaiah took out 186,000 men in one night. I think they're pretty good at what they do. And here they have the nerve to revile an angelic majesty. I don't get it. One person standing up, arrogant as can be, you can see it also in verse number 12, that, that they are like unreasoning animals. Unreasoning animals. And, and they go on, reviling where they have no knowledge. That's a lot of arrogance. And, and we see that in all these other verses too, but verse 18 points it out. They speak out arrogant words of vanity. Arrogant, arrogant, arrogant. Do you like talking to anybody who's like that? Nobody's comfortable in that conversation. Arrogant people are there, and these false teachers are known for that. They're known to be greedy as well. I'm up to number six, I think. Greedy. They're greedy. Chapter two, still, verse number three. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In their greed. Chapter 2, verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery, they never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. Look at those words. A heart trained in greed. And then jump down to verse 15. They follow the ways of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, loved them. There's a lot of greed in this picture. Now, so far I've told you they have a spiritual appearance, but they're deceptive. They're disgusting, they're destructive, they're full of themselves, they are greedy. Number seven, they are false teachers. (laughs) Just so you know it. The word false, underline it right there. False, false, false. Destructive heresies, 2-1. Denying the Master, chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 2, they malign the truth. Chapter 2, verse 3, they use false words. Verse 12, they have no knowledge. Verse 18, their words are vanity. And verse 18, they live, here's the word, live in error. They live in error. In error. That's not visit. That's live. They live in error. They are false teachers. And we underscore that. And then number eight on my list here is they are in trouble. We've been talking about that from time to time. But they are in trouble. Chapter 2, verse 1, swift destruction is coming. Chapter 2, verse 3, it speaks of their judgment. In chapter 2, verse 9, the Lord knows how. Remember, we went through that passage for a little while. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In chapter 2, verse 17, it speaks of the dark place, the black darkness that has been reserved for them. They are in trouble. It's coming that way. 
is coming that way. So I ask you, should we feel sorry for them? <laughs> After a list like that, nobody says they even want them around, for that matter. They are completely overcome by the very thing they're doing. That's what Peter's showing us. They are completely overcome by these things. But they have the appearance of a believer. How do we know that's true? Is because they've been invited to be in there and be in charge and do leadership. They are leading people. So how did they ever get in there? You know, they had to appear to be like us. If they came in this room and they had every sign of those eight that we just talked about, how likely are we to say, boy, we need another elder. Would you join us? We wouldn't do it, would we? Because we say, I know who you are. So what have they done in their appearance to look like they belong with us? That they belong with us. That's what Peter is dealing with. It says in verse number 20, let's go right to our text. After they have escaped the defilement of the word of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds like they're saved. That's what people start with when they try to describe. That's salvation, isn't it? That they, they, they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me say something simple. These folks are walking around showing what they say is salvation by knowledge, not by faith. Is there a difference? There is a huge difference. It's very important to keep this in its context. He is still talking about false teachers. Can they have gotten into a bad situation and worked their way out simply by knowledge? Use this program, that program. Oh, I got out of this boy. You know what? They've got a testimony that would blow you away. And they're probably using it. All they have done is acquired the knowledge to say these things, to do these things, but they don't have faith. There is no reference to faith whatsoever. Just knowledge. And follow with me as I walk through this, because this, kind of knowledge is deceptive as can be. It doesn't do us any good to know all the verses of this Bible if we have no faith in Jesus Christ. Understand that? If we don't have faith in Christ, all we've got is trivia information. We could win any contest on the planet, but that doesn't make you saved, does it? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Here they have an encyclopedia in their head of knowledge. And they attribute it as, that's how I got out from under this problem and that problem. But it's a mental deception that they're setting before you. This word knowledge, it's simply the word for recognition. But it's intensified. It's got epi. Epigenosco is the word here. And it means to have advanced knowledge. That's how we got impressed with them in the first place. These guys aren't the guys in the Christian church that are operating according to an associate's degree. They've got the masters or the doctorate, so to speak. 
People are looking up to them and saying, oh, they must be really intelligent now. They've got all this knowledge. They, they're talking about all these things. And, and they're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and how they were defiled and now they're out. And yet there's no reference to faith. It's just knowledge. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit, right? Many times we assume we know them by their words. You see the danger here? Oh, they've got all the right words. Oh, they're using the right words. It's the knowledge that we're looking at. A lot of people fall for knowledge. The Corinthians did. How well did they do? That's a tough book. They really were sloppy because they did not look at the issues from maturity and Christian growth and faith. They looked at it as, boy, that's a great speaker. He should be our pastor. That's a great-looking individual. He should be our leader. That's how the world recognizes people. And the world recognizes people who appear to be very knowledgeable. Don't let them deceive you just because they know what you know. Just because they know these things. Let me show you a passage. This will show it and help you out a lot. Romans chapter number 1. Romans chapter number 1. You know this is a description of somebody who is in really bad straits. I mean, this is, this is a bad chapter when it comes to describing the sins of mankind. Romans chapter number 1. Look at it with me to verse, let's see, 21. Let's start there. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Can they know Him? Knowledge-wise? Yes. Now, we use the word know all the time. We say, do you know Christ? We don't finish the sentence. We just say, do you know Christ? Anybody can answer that in the affirmative. Satan could answer that too. Do you know Christ? How about adding, do you know Christ by faith? Oh, is that different? Yes. Here in Romans, they are the blast is going against those who knew God, but did not honor Him. Look again in verse number 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that's your Bible. They know what God said. They know the truth. And those they even know that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Would you call these people believers? Romans chapter 1? No. But do they have knowledge? Yes. Does it help them? No, it does not. You see the picture? Peter is saying, this is what they know. They know, they know. And they set up this testimony that convinced people that knowledge is what it's all about. But that's not true. It's faith. Faith is what changes a person's heart and life. Not knowledge. That's very important to see that. Because that explains the rest of this passage. Alright? Because these folks 
claim this testimony, they've been released because they have knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then they're entangled again in them and overcome. Just like verse 19. They're overcome. Why? What happened? Well, we assume, well, they lost their salvation, or, you know, well, they weren't really one of us anyway. We, we go through all these gymnastics theologically to explain something real simple. They were false teachers, and they had deceived us to think that they were real. And they weren't, were they? They're trapped by the very thing in which they claim they've overcome. They're trapped in it, and it says the last state has become worse for them than the first. How could that be? Well, let's put it this way. They first have been entangled by it. All right? Entwined in it. I don't know about you guys, but I assume this is true. When you're putting up the barbed wire along the fence, it could get wrapped around your leg, can't it? That could be trouble. If you're out there working and you're working with a lot of things that could tangle you up, I imagine there's a lot of worries that that uh, you farmers have when you're working with things like that. A lot of hoses, a lot of chains, a lot of wires, a lot of things like that. And how easy it is to, in just one moment, to be entangled. Not your intention. You don't go out there to do it, did you? But it happened. These folks are playing with fire. They're actually playing with fire. If you use that picture here, they are setting up for this to actually happen. They cannot keep from being entangled. They're so deep into it. They think that they're stronger than it. They're better than this. Uh, they're the leaders, so leaders don't get entangled. The weak people do. Well, here's the point. No matter how clever they think they are in sinfulness, the wages of sin is still death. You can't change that. And that is the outcome every single time. Whether they're strong in their knowledge or not. The wages of sin is death. It's not based on any kind of partiality. God doesn't say, oh, but they were smart, so I'll let them go. Or they were rich, I'll let them go. Or they were very clever people, I'll let them go. The wages of sin is death no matter what. And these people have been playing with sin. Guess what they're going to get entangled in? It's guaranteed. There's no other excuse. There's no escape. They've been woven into it, entwined with it. As Proverbs said, this is, I'm going to read it to you from the Septuagint. Proverbs 28, 18. The one who is traveling uprightly will be completely delivered, but the one who is traveling in a crooked way, he will be entangled. It's inevitable. That's what wisdom teaches in God's Word. Now, what's the difference? We sin as believers, but we know a Savior. Isn't that wonderful to hear? We have a Savior. We have somebody to go to. We have somebody to, to talk to. He works in it. We're going down this journey, and sometimes it's not an easy journey, but we're traveling the right direction, and we're not saying we don't have sin. We're just saying we have a Savior. They don't have a Savior. They don't. That's kind of frightening to think about, isn't it? They don't have a Savior. So, they are going to be entangled. Unfortunately, 
All the, the folks around them are looking at them saying, Oh, they must be a believer. They sing our songs and they pray with us and they go to our church and they teach and they preach. And it's quite possible they look very much like us. But look at their last state. It says that the, in verse number 20, the last state has become worse for them than the first. This is an interesting thing. What, the, what, it, what Peter is saying, the worst idea, the, worst, the word worse, is a greater degree. Their state will be in a greater degree than it was at first. If at first they are evil, how does it get worse? You really want to know? <laughs> I don't think we do. How does evil get worse? We say, no, I don't, I don't want to go down there. Because if you're talking about total depravity, how worse can that get? Total is pretty total, isn't it? And if you go beyond that, what 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 is more depraved than total? I don't know. It sounds ugly. But I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about. I think he's talking about your first state and your permanent state. The first state is one thing. The permanent state is much worse. The first state is that they're masquerading on earth as teachers in the church. Does God look highly on that? No. I mean, even a good teacher is held accountable twice the amount that uh, Scripture would say that. They're, they're, you know, should be quite concerned about their teaching. But a false teacher in his first state is what we've been studying all the way through these two books, Jude and Second Peter. That's their first state as masqueraders of what is right when they're false all along. That's a bad state to be in. But what can be worse than that? How about their eternal conscience? The misery of knowing that they had the truth in their hands and in their head, but never in their heart. I don't know what it's like, and I never will know what it's like, to suffer torment forever and ever. Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> but the folks who do go there, who have had knowledge of God's Word, knowledge of the identity of Christ, never received Him as their Savior, twisted His truth all the way through, went about thinking knowledge was what it was all about, and the Lord says, but I never knew you. And they go to the place of torment, and they spend eternity, and I can't even fathom it, eternity knowing that they had knowledge but no faith. Think of the conscious misery that that is going to be. It's going to be worse for them in the end because they paraded around as if they had known it, but what they had done was maligned it. They maligned it to their own destruction. That's what it said earlier in the chapter. They maligned it to their own destruction. And here they are, having the knowledge, but it did them no good. What a terrible state to be in. What a terrible state to be in. They're completely overcome. You see the picture? Completely overcome by this sin. You say, but I don't see it in this life. No. <laughs> in the next, yes. 
That's why it's going to hurt the worse. Subdued by their own teaching, enslaved to their own corruption, and then taken to a place where it will never, ever change. We don't talk a whole lot about the eternal nature of hell. We don't like the topic. To be honest, we just don't, we don't like the topic because it doesn't apply to me. Thank you. We don't have to go down that road. But if we stop and think about the nature of it and those who will participate in it, and especially these who have tampered with God's word all these years and now they're there, they're going to have the conscious, the consciousness of all these things. They're not going to be annihilated. There's no such thing as soul sleep, that they're just gone. They're oblivious to what's going on. They're not going to hit a certain temperature and poof, go up and no longer exist. The scripture teaches it clearly. The lake of fire is eternal. Eternal. And here is a group of people who have knowledge of the truth, but they never knew Christ by faith. Isn't that a scary thing? As Peter's walking through this passage, it just alarms me to read these words. The damage that they do, not only to the church, but to themselves, is terrible. That's why that proverb is quoted in verse 22. A dog is a dog. You can take that dog, take it down, get it groomed up, and get it set for some sort of a dog show and win the trophy. But guess what? It's still a dog. You can bring it in your house and let it live in there hours by hours, days by days, months by months. But guess what? It's still a dog. If you have a favorite dog right now, and I'm offending you, I'm sorry. But it's still a dog. All right? It's a dog. And a dog will do what a dog does. And it says here, a dog returns to its own vomit. doesn't matter how much you prettied it up and put perfume on it and everything else. Guess what? It's still a dog. And a pig is a pig. I know that sounds real complicated, but it's still true. A pig is a pig. You can clean it all you want, but first time it gets the view of the old pig pen, guess what? It's going. That's what pigs do. That's what dogs do. False teachers are false teachers. They could look like us. They could smell like us. They could dress like us. They could sing like us. They could do everything by knowledge that we can do. But without faith in Jesus Christ, a false teacher is a false teacher. And the outcome for them is terrible. And that's what we see in these verses. It's not a passage about this guy saved and now he's not. That's not the context. The context is the false teacher. See it? It's the false teacher. And this is what the Lord has to say about them. They are doing damage to themselves. I would say this. If we knew of false teachers right now, and we know all this story about it, I wouldn't hesitate to pray for them. As long as they're on this earth, there is a chance that the Lord's Word will penetrate that heart by faith. The Holy Spirit can change them. All right? I believe that with all my heart. He can change and, and make a believer out of a false teacher. 
I know in the Old Testament, he took about the wickedest king that Israel or Judah had ever known, named Manasseh. He did everything possible to be wicked. Matter of fact, it's almost like a, a contest for him. Who did the most wicked thing? I could beat that. And that's his whole life. Until he was taken away and put into prison. And there in that prison, he repented. Now, I'm not going to equate that with salvation. But I'm just simply saying, the wickedest man that ever ruled in Judah, repented, came back to serve the Lord. And he tried in every way he could to reverse the tide that he had set. Unfortunately, it didn't help, because the people were still following his wicked ways. But there was a man that was changed. And that's an Old Testament picture, but we could probably pull up several New Testament folks. We could talk about people in our day, or somewhere in our history, that uh, we could say, man, they were just rotten to the core. They were teaching people to do rotten things. They were, they were leaders in churches. And then God got a hold of their heart. Change them forever through faith in Jesus Christ. Is it possible? Yes, because all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins before we knew him. So are false teachers. That's God's work. He can do it. So I'm not afraid to pray for him. I'm not going to follow him. I don't want to participate with him. But I could pray for him that the Lord does a work. And changes them forever. Because this is their destiny. If there's no change. And knowledge won't get them anywhere. Only faith will. It's just a picture that stands up and it's so stark and so alarming to read it. But that's where we are. And then when we jump into chapter 3 starting next week, they're, they're mockers. And it's going to just bring it, that picture back up again. What are they doing now? What are they doing now? They haven't changed because that's the nature of a false teacher. They continue on. They continue on. So I said that before you today, and I hope that's useful and helpful to you, because verse 20 through 22 is about as ugly as it gets. And it's important that we understand it. And not use it out of context, okay? Don't go dragging it all over the place to talk about other things. Talk about false teachers here. That's the context. And it's important we keep true to it. So, all right, there it is. Two minutes. Questions? I rarely ask for questions. But if you have a question, I'll answer it. Yes. The question that you cannot hear revolves around Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, and how does that relate to the topic we have discussed this evening? Yeah, it, it does have that same kind of thing, but look at verse number 6 right there. That's the key to the, the whole statement in the middle of all this. And then it fallen away. All right, have they been part of everything? Yes. All right, we can't fully understand the nature of all these words. But they've tasted, they've partaked in, they've been, you know, they've seen things, but they've fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. How many times did Christ die? Once. Is He going to die again? No. Here's a simple picture. Salvation is once. 
You cannot say, oh, let's restart this one. <laughs> All right? We, we don't have a refresh button on this one. We can't say, okay, uh, they, were, they were saved, they got into sin or something. We don't know if they were us, they were not of us. They've fallen away. Is it possible that they could be saved again? If they were saved the first time, the answer is no. They can't be saved again because you're only saved once. Make sense? It's one time that salvation comes through. If it's real salvation, it's once. So people go out of their way to say, let's get them saved again. And it's, it's impossible. <laughs> because salvation is once. Right? That, that's the simple picture if, if we go through the whole things, It says, well, if they, if they really were saved, then we cannot do anything else about that. They're saved. And we can't restart that button. It's just the fact that they were saved. Now, that's one way. The other thing is this as well. What is there to replace Jesus Christ? Nothing. You could go back and say, yes, they've had the tasted of the heavenly gifts. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. If they didn't know Christ in the first place, what else do we have to offer them? There is no replacement for Jesus Christ crucified. And some people say, but I've tasted of the good word of God. That didn't save you. I've been a partaker uh, of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's come upon other people, too. They've had some sort of association with that. So did Balaam. That didn't save them. All right? What, what about this one? They, they've tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, what's the difference between tasting and eating? You see it? So many will go about and say, but I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. But if you take Christ out of the picture, it's impossible to save them. Because there's nothing else to offer them. That's all we got to offer. And so, it's impossible to renew them to any kind of repentance, because it's only through Christ that they can be, repent they can be saved. They cannot come any other way. So, he's just going through with this fact, it's impossible. He says it also, by the way, in chapter 11, verse 4, or is it verse 6? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't do it. And so, anytime you take Jesus Christ out of the picture and his crucifixion out of this picture, there's nothing left. Salvation's impossible without that. And so, I think those are some of the better areas to explore and think through than what is typically given to us which is contradictory, by the way, to Scripture, because they always present it as, well, they must have been believers, and then they've fallen away, and now what do we do with them? The reason I say all that is because God's Word never contradicts itself. Never will, never will. And chapter 7, verse number 25, which is one chapter away, not even many verses away, but it says, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him, for them. The fact of the matter is, if you believe that God's words contradicts itself, one of those verses is wrong. If we believe chapter 6 is about salvation, then chapter 7 is wrong. You see? 
I go with the easy and say, I know that's true. And then I go to the hard and I would say, I know what it doesn't teach. It can't possibly teach the opposite of chapter 725. So that's why I go with other options other than he was saved and he lost his salvation and now what do I do? It's not that. I think it's because they've tried other things other than Christ to show that they were saved and they never had it in the first place. And you can't save somebody without Christ. Such an interesting passage. But we wrestle with it. We wrestle with it all the You know what our problem is? We're looking at people. And people who we have associated with and fellowshiped with. And then we say, what just happened? They just fell off the planet. We don't know what's wrong with these people. And then we go into this big puzzle of, were they or weren't they? And it's funny how doctrines have been developed and divisions have existed and all these other things have mounted up because people are trying to figure out people. I'd rather just take God's word and say, okay, I don't understand that person, but I understand this much. And the Lord will work that out. So, that's a very good question. That's a hard passage. Chapter 6, they say it's the hardest passage in all of Scripture. Hebrews 6, right around verse 5 and 6 there. They say, that's the hardest one in the whole book. And I'm not sure all the time that I have it exactly right, but I do know what it doesn't say. And that's where I stop with it most of the time. Okay, that was the one question. We've used our time. So now we got to go. <laughs> All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for loving us like you do. It's so refreshing to know Jesus Christ is our Savior by faith in him. And what a, what a refreshing, encouraging thing it is to be among our brothers and sisters in Christ who also know him by faith that we could study your word, and even in the hardest, hardest sections of it, we could still come away rejoicing because we know you, not by words of knowledge, but by faith in you. And what a refreshing thing that is. Although we live in a very confused world, and even the church itself is quite confused, and, and there's many, many things that uh, they seem to be a tangled mess and unable to unravel, and we don't know at times what to do. When we are faced with evil, when leadership goes uh, sour and we don't understand what's happening, when people we trust are not walking with the Lord, we, we get confused, and we always do. But Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, and not on them, on you, and that you might use us how you would see fit to be examples of what is true, and what is right, and what is Christ-like. Help us to keep our eyes on you, so that we don't fall for the schemes of the false teacher, so that we don't get caught up in their traps, that we might be able to stand firm in the evil day, and stand with our armor on. There's so much the Scripture tells us to be doing, and I pray, Lord, that you keep our eyes on you, and in your Word, and, and just feasting on the truth. Guide us through it, we pray. Help us with it, we pray. And thank you for the week yet before us. Maybe you'll come this week, and we'll thank you for that too. But until you come, help us to be faithful, Lord, to walk faithful with our God. 
And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.